Some people are impossible to please. No matter how many adjustments you make, you just can't figure them out. Now, by the laughs I hear, you have somebody in mind. I'm going to throw out a group that you might not be thinking of. Movie critics. There's a reason why people say everybody's a critic. Now, I'm not sure if you could call me a movie buff, but when I do decide to see a movie, I want to know what I'm getting into. I want to ensure that the time and money I spend to go see a film is worth my while. So how do I ensure that? I check the movie reviews. Same concept works for restaurants, right? You check to see how good a restaurant is. But I am well aware of the downside to this. I'm well aware that these reviews shape my expectations going into a film. Okay, so if I read any kind of criticism or praise for the movie, I will look for that when I'm watching. But I'm willing to take that risk because I want to ensure that, that my time and money is worth my while. Now, if you're old school, you could check the newspaper for movie reviews. I'm not sure if they used to have them. I'm not sure if they still do. Uh, or, like many do, you can check the internet. And one of the most popular websites is called Rotten Tomatoes. Yes. Uh, created by undergrad students at UC Berkeley, Rotten Tomatoes is named for the old practice of throwing rotten tomatoes at the stage during a play, which I can't believe that was ever a thing, uh, doing that. Uh, Rotten Tomatoes is a website that collects reviews from critics across the country, and it calculates a score, a percentage grade. So I think a movie is called Certified Fresh if it's above 70%. I think I could be wrong. Now, it's often the case, not always, that with Rotten Tomatoes and with movie critics in general, that they hate movies everybody loves and love movies that nobody really cares about. <laughs> So I'll give you an example. Two movies from last year. Okay, first one, Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. Okay, this is the second installment of the reboot of the 90s dinosaur film series. Okay, there was the fourth highest grossing film of 2018. It grossed $416 million, which is unbelievable. That's a movie. Uh, making it, yeah, the fourth highest grossing movie, Rotten Tomatoes, it received a 48%. Take another example. Movie called The Favorite. Have you heard of it? Okay, that's what I thought. This is a film nominated for Best Picture in the Academy Awards. It's a winner of one Academy Award. Uh, it grossed, compared to the 416 million of Jurassic World, it grossed 34 million, making it the 81st highest grossing movie, placing it below films such as Sherlock Gnomes, Tyler Perry's Acrimony and Goosebumps 2, Haunted Halloween. <laughs> it received a 93% on Rotten Tomatoes. In our passage today, the disciples will get to see Jesus in glory and Jesus' road to suffering again. And they go full Rotten Tomatoes in responding to both. It seems that no matter what Jesus does, they either don't get him or they don't like what he's saying. Now, as we see both sides that this passage presents, uh, this passage is referred to as the transfiguration, we're encouraged to believe this, what I think is the main point from this passage, to believe this, that the Jesus of glory 
and the Jesus of suffering are not two separate individuals, but one and the same. The Jesus of glory and the Jesus of suffering are not two separate individuals, but one and the same. So we're continuing in our study of the Gospel of Mark. And so it'll be, you'll really be helped if you turn there. Uh, Mark chapter 9, beginning at verse 2. If you're looking at a Bible that looks like this, in the pew rack in front of you, you'll find it on page 844. Mark 9, beginning at verse 2. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it was written of him. This is God's word. A couple of weeks ago, we hit a turning point in the Gospel of Mark. We came to the close of chapter 8. It all started back when Jesus asked his disciples that central question, who do people say that I am? And treating that question with that level of importance, it means that Jesus is either an egomaniac and a narcissist, or that he actually is the Son of God in the flesh. It forces us to do one of two things, either dismiss him or accept him and worship him. Now, the disciples answering that question, they're represented by Peter, profess Jesus to be the Christ. That is, the Messiah, God's anointed, the long-awaited promised one who would bring in the kingdom of God. But ever since then, ever since that good moment, Jesus has shown them how much they still don't know what that means how much they still don't know what it means for him to be the Christ. Now, he is the Christ, as Jesus will say. But as the Christ, he must be murdered. And as we move forward through the second half of Mark, we'll see how Jesus will continue to have to reiterate that this is the path that he must go down, that this path is necessary. Now, this moment in the Gospel of Mark, the transfiguration, This is another example of one of those reiterations. Now, heading into this passage, before we really dive in, I want you to notice one detail. Look with me at verse 2. Verse 2. Now, there we see who Jesus is with. You see what they're doing. We see what happens to Jesus. He's transfigured. More on that in a minute. Now, before Jesus describes, or before Mark describes Jesus' transfiguration, 
right at the very end of verse 2, what does it say? He says that this happened before the disciples. It happened before them. So what's taking place here is for the disciples' sake. It's so that they can see something of Jesus and believe in who he really is and what he's really come to do. The disciples then get to see Jesus in two different lights. They get to see Jesus in glory, and they get to see Jesus' path to suffering. And what they need to realize is that this is the same individual. They're not two different ones. So we'll divide our time with, between both of those lights, Jesus in glory and Jesus in suffering. So verses 2 to 8, we'll see Jesus in glory, what's highlighted of Jesus there, how the disciples just don't get it. They go rotten tomatoes. And what they're called to do in light of who Jesus is. And then verses 9 to 13, we'll see Jesus' path to suffering. You know, what's highlighted of Jesus there, how the disciples don't get it, and what they're called to do instead. So, first, Jesus in glory. Okay, as, we, as with other passages of Scripture, and really as a good pattern of reading in general, we should take stock of the setting. So we just get our bearings on what's happening. Now, we come to expect this from stories without even realizing it. So you think of uh, the Star Wars movies, right? How do all the Star Wars movies start? Or they start with that scroll, the very long scroll that goes too fast, and I can't read it. <laughs> and it starts with the words, a long time ago oh, in a place far, far away. That's the setting right there. It's, it, you get the time and you get the place without even us realizing it. So it's often the same case in a, most biblical passages. It's helpful to notice. So I think Mark gives us his kind of Star Wars scroll from verses 2 to 4. Uh, he describes and sets up what's happening in the scene, and he'll move more into the significance uh, beginning in verse 5. So just as a, a side note, I like these on occasion, one goal of expository preaching, that is you know, preaching the main point of a biblical passage and you know, doing that systematically, step by step through a book, one of the goals of that is to equip us to read the, gospel, to read the Bible well. And this is us doing that, taking note of the setting. Helps us read the Bible well. So, what is a setting? What's happening here? Well, as Buffalo Springfield says, there is something happening here. Let's pick out the details in verses 2 to 4. My 60s people caught that. <laughs> verses 2 to 4, some details. Right away, Mark tells us what, when this happens. It says, after six days. This is unusual for Mark. Mark normally doesn't mention the timeline of events. Uh, and really, um, so we have to ask, what gives? Why? So, like, again, equip ourselves to read the Bible well. When we have questions about a particular verse in the Bible, helpful thing to do, look at the surrounding verses, context clues. We don't have to go very far here. Why does Mark mention the time? Well, after Jesus is called to deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow him, he ends on a word of comfort at the beginning of chapter 9, verse 1. So by the way, chapter and verse divisions, they're not original. They were added later just as a helpful tool. So he ends on a word of comfort. He told them that some there would, not, would see the kingdom of God come in power. That they would see that. And lo and behold, six days after that, the transfiguration happens. And not all the disciples are there, but some of them are there. Peter, James, and John. There's a fulfillment of that promise he makes. Peter, James, and John would be the innermost circle of 
the, the 12 disciples. That's the who. So we get the when, when, we get the who. And even in the Star Wars scroll part of the story, there's a lesson, there's a small takeaway. It's a sweet lesson for the disciples and for us. It's that Jesus shows his knowledge of what's to come. Knowledge that only God the Father has. And Jesus shows his faithfulness and his power to keep his promises, even in a small thing. But the scroll continues. So we saw when this happened, see who is there. We also see where they're going. Jesus led them up a high mountain. Now commentators have tried to deduce what mountain this is. I remember in the previous section, chapter 8, they're in a city called Caesarea Philippi. It would be in the northern part of Israel, roughly 25 miles north of Galilee. It's where Jesus spent most of his time. Now, Caesarea Philippi is at the foot of Mount Hermon. Uh, so most say this is the probable site of the transfiguration, although Mark doesn't find it important enough to mention it. More important than the exact mountain is that it's a mountain in general. So if you know the Bible, different stories in the Bible, you'll know that a lot of important things have went down on a mountain. Think of Abraham and Isaac, Mount Moriah. Even think of the two characters we're going to see in a moment, Moses and Elijah. Both saw God's glory in a unique way on a mountain. So Jesus leading his disciples up a mountain is a clue to us. Something important is about to happen. So the scroll has shown, we're reading it. Hopefully it's not going too fast. The scroll has shown us the when, the who, the where, and finally we get to the what. What exactly happened? Close of verse 2 says that Jesus was transfigured before them. Before them. Again, it's meant for the disciples. And that word transfigure, I don't, I don't use this in everyday language. Maybe you do. Maybe you're smarter than me, and, and you do. But I don't. And it's even a rare verb in the New Testament. It gives us the sense of a radical change, transfiguration. And what did this look like? Well, verse 3 says it was bright, it was white. And we could put it, it was otherworldly. But no power on earth could explain what's going on here. Boy, we wish we had more details than that. This is just how Mark writes, though. Brief, succinct. He's concerned less about all the details, and he's more concerned about having his re readers reflect on the significance of what's happening. More on that soon. We'll get there. But there's one last scroll detail we need to notice in these verses. We get a bonus who category. More characters arrive on the scene. So we see that. Elijah and Moses. Elijah and Moses. Why these guys? Many will say that Elijah and Moses are representatives of the major divisions of the Old Testament. Moses for the law, Elijah for the prophets. That's not wrong. But the most basic level, these two figures are those who prepare the way for Christ. So Elijah goes before Jesus, as we'll see uh, him explain in the next paragraph. And Moses is the one who spoke of a prophet to come after him to whom we must listen, similar to what God will say in a moment. Now the prophet Malachi in the Old Testament speaks of these two figures together in Malachi 4, verses 4 to 6. He says, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. 
Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So Malachi 4, we see the role of Elijah and Moses together preparing for the day of the Lord, preparing the way for the Messiah. Here they are showing up with Jesus, and it says they're talking to him. Verse 4, it says they come to talk with Jesus. One of the great things about having four different Gospels is that we get to see you know, four different witnesses of largely the same events. So Luke fills in the details here of what they were talking about. It would be great to hear that conversation. He says they were talking about Jesus' departure that was to come in Jerusalem. Literally, Jesus' exodus that was to come in Jerusalem. So here are these two figures representing the old covenant, God's set of promises in his relationship to his people. Two figures representing the old covenant, talking about how Jesus would bring in the new covenant, God's new set of promises that he would forge through the blood of Christ to forgive people of their sins, to give them his spirit, to adopt them as their children, all ushered in by Jesus. So scroll is done. Get the when, got the who, got a second category, the who, got the where, got the what. Now we get to the main problem. The problem begins, unsurprisingly, when Peter opens his mouth. (laughs) Now after all that talk about suffering and dying from Jesus in the previous section, now Peter and the crew get to see this. Essentially, Peter's like, Jesus, this is what I'm talking about. This is more like it. And we could try to cut Peter some slack here. The Jewish people in that day hoped that God would once again dwell with his people like he did in the tabernacle during the Exodus. And that word tent in verse 5 is the same word used for tabernacle. Now, to some degree, Peter is reflecting that hope here. At the same time, however, Mark tells us that Peter didn't know what to say. How Matthew tells it, when Peter is still speaking, when he's still rambling on, God the Father interrupts. The Father says, this is my beloved Son. Listen to him. It's here, it's right here, is the application that the disciples and us get application from what's happening. You see how there are two parts to what God the Father says? Really, it's not terribly complicated. Parts relate to who Jesus is, this is my beloved son, and our response to him, listen to him. So from this unique scene, we get lessons in both. Lessons about who Jesus is and lessons about our response to him. I'm going to reflect on that for a moment. Okay, lessons about Jesus. I think we see at least three of them from this scene. First lesson about Jesus is that Jesus is not another prophet. He is the prophet. Jesus is not another prophet. He is the prophet or the Messiah. Notice what Peter says in verse 5. He wants to make three tents, one for Jesus, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Now, what's wrong with that, you might ask? You Christians are so nitpicky, always pointing out faults in other people. Hold on just a second. Now, we can't be. All right. 
hear me out though. Does Peter treat Jesus as if he's any different than Moses or Elijah? No. He treats them on the same plane. That's a mistake. These figures were not on the same level as Jesus. They were witnesses to him. So Jesus wasn't another prophet. He is the Messiah. And we think that the disciples would have learned this by now. In fact, that they said something similar to this just six days earlier. When Peter asked him, where Jesus asked him, who do people say that I am? And they said, people say you're just another prophet. And Peter says, but you're the Christ. They said this, they understood this already, but they're doing differently from what they said. So, Peter failed to notice what should have been flat obvious. Who was transfigured on the mountain? Was Moses? Was Elijah? No, only Jesus. Who remained after Moses and Elijah vanished? That's right, only Jesus. So friends, Jesus fits in the story of God redeeming his people. He fits in that story as do Moses and Elijah. He's not a walk-on recruits to that story. He's a promise, a part of it. But he's not just another notch in that story, like Moses and Elijah are. He's the culmination of that story. Listen to how Hebrews 1 explains this. You can turn there if you like. Hebrews 1, verses 1 to 3. It says, Long ago, and at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, But in these last days, he has spoke to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So we talked about equipping ourselves to read the Bible well. Here, we can do this again. Friends, don't read your Bible as a series of disjointed stories with various moral lessons. Read it as one grand story that culminates and centers on Jesus Christ. That's how Jesus read the scriptures. Read Luke 24. That's how the apostles read the scriptures. Read Acts 10, verse 43. All the prophets testify of Christ. Second lesson we can learn about Jesus from this scene, the transfiguration, is that Jesus does not need a tabernacle because he is the tabernacle. Jesus does not need the tabernacle because he is the tabernacle. So just defining our terms here, the tabernacle was how Israel in the wilderness experienced God's presence. It's a fancy word for big tent. So again, given the hope of what God would do for them, we can see where Peter was coming from when he said he wanted to build them tabernacles. But he missed the lesson. He missed the lesson that was right in front of them. Here was Jesus, not reflecting the glory of the Lord, like Moses in Exodus 24, like we read, whose face shone because he saw the glory of the Lord. No, Jesus has that glory in himself. Yet the disciples could still look at him. So here is one in Jesus who has the same glory as God and yet has come to dwell among us. That reflects what John says in John 1, verse 14. 
says the word became flesh and dwelt among us, literally tabernacled among us. They didn't need a tabernacle and they didn't need a temple because through Jesus, they could approach the very presence of God. So friends, street level, do you want to know God? This is how he has made himself known, by his son. In the words of Christ, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Third lesson about Jesus from this scene. This is who he always has been, and this is what's to come. This is who he always has been, and this is what's to come. So the transfiguration acts both as an unveiling, like the Wizard of Oz when they get behind the curtain and they see he's a phony. Although this time they, they get behind the curtain and see that he's more glorious than they ever imagined. Transfiguration acts both as an unveiling and as a preview. See both of this in other places. In praying to the Father later, Jesus will say that he had glory with the Father before the foundation of the world. And so here's a glimpse behind that curtain. But then in, just, in this passage, the verses right before, Mark 8.38 and Mark 9.1, Jesus speaks of coming in the glory of his Father, and he speaks of the kingdom being established in power. So right here, then, is a preview of what that will be. So real quick, the first, Jesus in glory is a longer point than Jesus in suffering, I promise. Uh, we want to consider, we consider lessons about Jesus, you know, that this is my beloved son, it's as if that this is italicized, like this, not Moses and Elijah, this is my beloved son. And the second part of what God the Father says, listen to him. So not only we get lessons about Jesus, we get lessons about our response to him. So we're familiar with these kinds of lessons, right? How to respond to authority, right? <clears throat> Sit up straight, chew with your mouth closed, put a sir or a ma'am on it. Say please and thank you. Say excuse me after you burp. But God wants more than polite manners. Let's think about what it means to listen to Christ. The first lesson we might draw from this is that to listen means to stop talking and start hearing. To listen means to stop talking and start hearing. In our culture, this isn't easy to do. Everyone has to have an opinion on something. And each individual gets to decide for him or herself what is true. Each individual is the final arbiter of truth. So to stop talking and start listening means to stop trusting in yourself and start trusting in the Lord. It's to stop seeing ourselves as wise in our own eyes and begin to see God alone as wise. It's to see God's greatness and holiness and our smallness and sinfulness and to cover our mouths, bow our knees in humility, respect, and worship. Friends, have you stopped talking and started hearing? Just think about how we can practice this every week. Right now, right now, we get to listen to God's word. This time isn't for us to talk. It's okay if you throw in an amen every now and then. It's all right. This time, most fundamentally, is for us to listen. And you're not ultimately listening to me. We're all listening to what God says in his word. Friends, that's a form of worship. 
listening to God's word and responding to it. It's the biggest form of worship we have. And we do that together every Sunday, and we should do that individually every day. Listen to Christ. I would just say that I rejoice for the Thessalonian spirit that is here. I rejoice for that. Um, You remember Paul writing to the Thessalonians, recounting when he first spoke the gospel to them. He says this, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. So brothers and sisters, thank you. Praise God for that spirit here. Lean into it. Praise God for that spirit, listening to God's word preached from a a young guy, kid, such as me. Um, Let's pray for more. Second lesson about our response to Jesus is that there are no qualifiers to the call to listen to him. There are no qualifiers to the call to listen to him. Put it a different way. There ain't no ifs, ands, or buts to this. (laughs) Listen to him. That's it. God doesn't say, listen to him, but only if you feel like it. God doesn't say, listen to him, but only from 10.30 to 12 on Sundays. God doesn't say, listen to him, but only if you agree with what he's saying. God doesn't say, listen to him, but only if it will mean you'll still be cool. God doesn't say, listen to him, but only after you've checked first with the values that your political party says you should have. That works both right and left, by the way. It's none of those. It's straightforward. Listen to him. Last lesson about our response to Jesus is that we listen to him by listening to the scriptures. We listen to him by listening to the scriptures. We haven't seen anything like the transfiguration. Jesus is is not here. Well, he is in, in spirit, but in flesh, no. We don't, not even all the disciples got to see this. Only three of them got to see this. So the transfiguration was an encouragement to Peter, James, and John to believe. And what about the rest of us? What's the encouragement for the rest of us? Well, it's good that you asked that. Peter later reflected on this incident in 2 Peter chapter 1, which we read earlier. He says they heard of God's voice on the mountain, but now they have that word more fully confirmed. Where is that word more fully confirmed? It's right here in the scriptures. The voice that spoke on the mountain is the same one that speaks in his word and bears the same testimony about Christ. Listen to him. Cherish this gift. All right, that's Jesus in glory, Jesus in suffering, more quickly. For most of us, the first days in a new class involve a review of a syllabus. Syllabus week is the favorite among students. The professor previews the assignments for the course and communicates the expectations for the quality and style of work. Usually not any homework. Syllabus week. It's awesome. But for some, the first day of a new class involves an aptitude test. The professor hasn't taught anything, 
but gives the students a test on the very first day in order to figure out what she's working with and how much they know. So let's narrate what's going on here for a moment. Look at verse 9. Jesus, Peter, James, and John come down off the mountain. Jesus tells them not to tell anyone about what they saw until after he rose again. Friends, this is not an aptitude test for them. They aren't going off of no information. Jesus has already told them his path to die and rise again. And what's more, they just heard God the Father himself tell them to listen to Jesus. This isn't an aptitude test. They've heard what they need to hear. Now they get to apply what they've heard. And unfortunately, they fall flat on their face. (laughs) If you've been with us throughout our study in uh, Mark, we're just narrating what's happening here in verses 9 to 13, you'll be familiar with Jesus' command to silence. Don't tell anybody. Now this is the last one of those in all of Mark. And this is, though, the first one where Jesus gives a little bit of an explanation after. Until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. Now, Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. He's the second person of the Trinity in the flesh. But Jesus wants to keep people from thinking that he's come immediately for the crown and not for the cross. Only until that happens will we have, will they have all they need to know about who Christ is. We noticed a couple weeks ago, this command changes. Before the cross and the resurrection, it's don't tell anybody. What happens after the cross and the resurrection? What does Jesus tell his disciples? Tell everybody. It changes. They have all the information they need. So again, just narrating what's going on, the disciples got to see a preview. They got to see, or they got to hear God the Father verifying that preview. Someone far more credible than Rotten Tomatoes. They got to hear Jesus give a command that he's already given them, and still, and still, they don't get it. Verse 10 says that they question what Jesus means. And the words Mark uses here give more of a negative overtone than what we read. The disciples did more than keep this secret and question the resurrection. They they seemed to resist this idea. It's not unlike what we saw Peter do last week, rebuking Jesus. So what was it about this? Was it that they didn't understand the concept of someone rising from the dead? No, I don't think that could be it. I mean, that's plain enough. You think about the context which they live, the Jewish people of the day. It's a well-established expectation that God would raise people from the dead to, uh, to judge them before their final eternal state. And even remember back in Mark 6, some people thought that Jesus was John the Baptist risen from the dead. So it's not that the disciples were confused about this concept. Think about it. What's necessary? What has to happen for Jesus to rise from the dead? He has to die. That's the part that ships them up. Jesus has to die. So the disciples ask about Elijah. Now, that's the first thing you would ask, right? 
Well, no, it's not the first thing I would ask. <laughs> they just saw this great scene, Jesus' glory unveiled, and this is what they ask. It's not, it might be the top of my list, but sure, guys, go for it. Ask about Elijah. <laughs> now, on the surface, it makes no sense to us. It makes no sense why they would ask this to Jesus, what they did in verse 11. But let's remember some things, okay? Trying to put ourselves in their shoes or their sandals. They also just saw Elijah. And they would be well acquainted with the verses we quoted from Malachi 4. That Elijah will come before the day of the Lord to restore all things. So what the disciples are doing is really sneaky. Now this is the more, this is the trickier part of this passage. So just buckle up and try to follow me for a second. Hopefully you can stay buckled up. Um, the disciples are trying to slip in the back door. So I'm sure you've experienced somebody asking you a question and you really know what they're asking. Like there's a question behind the question. So here was Jesus talking about the coming of the kingdom, showing that he's definitely capable of doing that. But if Elijah is supposed to come and restore all things before the kingdom, then why does Jesus need to die? If Elijah restores all things, if everything's good, and then the kingdom comes, why, why does there need to be this death if everything's good, if everything's restored? So Jesus responds by saying, you're right. Elijah does restore all things. But basically, he doesn't restore them as you think. John the Baptist, who came in the spirit of Elijah, restored all things by preaching a message of repentance. At the beginning of Mark, Mark says how all Jerusalem and all Judea came out to see John in the wilderness and be baptized by him, preparing the way for the Messiah. But if John the Baptist is this Elijah figure who goes before Christ, restoring all things, what else happens to John the Baptist? Well, he also suffered at the hands of the people. So if the one who prepares the way for the Messiah was killed, then wouldn't it make sense that the Messiah himself would suffer the same fate? So catch our breath, park the car, unbuckle for a second. To summarize what Jesus says to his disciples, basically, your hope isn't off base. The ultimate peace and uh, restoration will happen, but something else must happen. The Son of Man must die. Don't believe me? Look at what they did to John the Baptist. The Elijah who went before me. So this is what they need to understand. That Jesus is both the glorious king and the suffering servant. How do we square these away? The glorious king and suffering servant. How do these mesh together and not clash? Glorious king, suffering servant. There are several explanations to it. One is that for Jesus' mission to bring in the kingdom of God, suffering must happen before glory. Suffering must happen before glory. If God's people are to be included in his kingdom, then their sin must be paid for. They need a substitute. And Jesus is the perfect one who will die for their sin. <clears throat> Hebrews 2.9 says this, But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, Namely, Jesus, crowned with glory and honor 
because of the suffering of death. So by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So to us, suffering and glory can't go together. Because we assume that suffering means we are abandoned by God. That's our assumption. Friends, that is so often not the case. Hear that this morning. Your suffering does not mean you are abandoned by God. It's often the case that it's the opposite. The Bible, the Bible says God disciplines those he loves. The Bible says suffering is not a time when God abandons us. Suffering is the time when God is most at work in us. That's why Paul can say something as radical in Romans 5. Rejoice in your sufferings. And think about this too. Think about the model of our Lord. The Lord Jesus suffered. That means we have more in common with Jesus when we suffer than when we have success. Ever thought of it like that? It's not that we seek out suffering. It's not that we long for it to happen. It's that we don't believe the lie that suffering means God has abandoned us. Well, suffering servant, glorious king, how can these go together? So our suffering and glory can't go together because we think weakness diminishes glory rather than enhances it. We think weakness diminishes glory rather than enhances it. And the stunning thing is that while Jesus' death looks like a defeat, it's actually a victory. It's when he conquered sin and death. He conquered it by defeat. It's when he began ushering the kingdom of God in. His suffering doesn't diminish his glory. His suffering enhances his glory. Remember how he talked about the hour of his death. He called the hour of his death the hour that he is glorified. Weakness does not diminish glory. It often enhances it. So a few words of application as we close about glory and suffering. If we want glory, it must go through the cross. If we want glory, it must go through the cross. Friends, if you desire heaven, if you desire peace with God, you must go to Jesus, the one mediator between God and us. If you desire peace with God, if you desire heaven, you must have your sins forgiven. And the only way is through the cross of Christ. Colossians 1.20 says that God reconciles us to himself by making peace through the blood of the cross of Christ. So Christian, brothers and sisters, cherish this. And if you're here this morning, you have not come to Christ, laying your sins at his feet. And we would like nothing better than to talk to you more about what that means. You can find me after service. Another application here about suffering and glory, how they go together. Friends, we want to have a full view of Jesus. We want to have a full view of Christ. So sometimes the application is simply to behold him. Simply that. To see his glory and see his suffering. And when we catch a glimpse of the greatness seen in the transfiguration, it only magnifies the depths of his humiliation on the cross. So this full view of Christ is captured so well by the ancient creeds of the church. From the Apostles' Creed, for example, it says, I believe in Jesus Christ, 
God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. A full view of Christ, the Son of God and the Son of Man. You can read the same full view of Christ in the Nicene Creed and the Chalcedonian Creed. Christians have always had this full view. Jesus is truly God and truly man, glorious and crucified. Don't settle for less. Last word, application, we'll close. Friends, right now, right now, our discipleship should look like our Lord's life. Our discipleship should look like our Lord's life. The way of Jesus is the way of weakness, humility, and sacrifice. By reminding them of his fate, Jesus reminds his disciples of this. But notice what also the disciples would be reminded of. Now Christ's path, yes, would be their path as well. But after the transfiguration, did Jesus stay on the mountain? Oh, it says he came down with them. Now, that promise is still here for us. Jesus tells us that the road after him is not easy. But we are not alone on that road. Jesus promises us that I will be with you even until the end of the age. The same promise we see here after the transfiguration. But more than that, think of what the disciples would be reminded of and that how they could look back on the transfiguration, Jesus in glory, how that could have acted as a reminder for them, how that could have acted as an encouragement to believe. Because pretty soon, they will see Jesus get arrested. They will see Jesus being falsely judged. They will see Jesus being stripped of his clothes. They will see Jesus being beaten. They will see Jesus being mocked. And they will see Jesus crucified. And during all that, when things have gone terribly wrong, it seems like, the transfiguration should have reminded them that glory is coming. So for us, when nothing is going right, when the gospel seems defeated, our culture seems gone, the church is weak, our faith is floundering, We have something more than the cliche, everything is going to be okay. We say glory is coming because we can look back, not just at the transfiguration. We can look back and do what the Apostle Paul tells Timothy, to remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Glory is coming. Same reminder from the transfiguration. Friends, let's pray. Oh, Lord, thank you for revealing yourself to us. Thank you for revealing yourself to us in your word through your son, by opening our eyes by your spirit. Oh, God, we want to behold Christ for who he really is and be made like him. We want to listen to him in all of our lives without any qualifications. God, help us do that together. Help us encourage one another in that way. Help us to remember when everything seems wrong, to remember what's to come. 
to remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. The glory is coming. It's to remember that you are with us always to the end of the age. Thank you, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.